Hello, welcome again to Comic Connoisseurs. Uh, tonight we'll be talking about make your own whenever the we can't trust the big conglomerates to make the media we want anymore. We make our own. So, uh, or we talk about the brave pioneers that decided to make their own when the big conglomerates are making stuff that we do not care for. So, first I'm like, oh, Stadium Rosasker doing. Good evening. Also with us is brother from another podcast, TV's Mr. Neil. You can run with us. We've got everything you need. <laughs> God, so, I missed that show. <laughs> so this this topic came up because uh, it's something that I heard uh, Tim Poole said uh, many months ago when when talked about the fact that uh, I think this had to do with Jeremy's Razors. Uh, do you know about Jeremy's Razors, JT? I am unfamiliar with that. Okay, so basically the uh, the the media group uh, Daily uh, Wire which uh, Ben Shapiro, the kosher shrimp, is a part of, uh, they had a big sponsorship deal with Harry's Razors, which was a subscription razor service. It was mm -hmm. a service I used to use as well. And what happened was one person with like seven Twitter followers tweeted to Harry's Razors and called the Daily Wire a hate group. And they decided to not only drop sponsorship, but also condemn the Daily Wire saying, you know, we don't believe in phobic speech, blah, 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 blah. Um, the owner of Daily Wire is a man named Jeremy. And Jeremy decided, you know what? I'm going to make my own razor company called Jeremy's Razors Company. And the whole pitch is stop giving money to people that hate you. And um, it is a razor service. It is one I am subscribed to. And the razors come out. They're, they're really nice razors that works really well. Um, and when this happened, Tim Pool, who used to be a Bernie bro back in 2016, look it up. Tim Pool was a totally a Bernie bro. Um, slowly transformed during the culture war all the way to 2020. And in 2020, he was a firm Trump voter. Um, simply because he was observing the culture war and this all or nothing attitude that, that uh, people have. And with that, uh, with that thing with Jeremy's razors, Tim Poole said famously, our attitude should not be, why are they making the stuff that we like? Uh, you know, why are they why do we give money to people that hate us? Or why should we care when the big conglomerates make stuff that we don't like anymore, make our own? And I can't help but think how true this concept is because, you know, we look at the vast landscape and in the last five years, how many times have we dished about, dished about oh, DC's doing this to Batman or Superman. It's not the same as I like it, it's something completely different and weird, and it only appeals to like a fringe minority of readers, and they're losing more and more um, readers by doing this. And we're seeing the numbers drop off more and more. Like, you know, the comic book industry is a joke where the big two companies, DC and Marvel, consider 30,000 readers out of what could be a pool of, let's say, 10 to 12 million young adults and youths that could be comic book readers. They consider thirty thousand a good number, like, and the reason why this is shit is because they, because the writers are in their own bubble, and they're catering to people in their own bubble. Not they're not catering to the vast masses that want to consume this. This, this is especially startling because throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe boom that Disney and Marvel enjoy, it doesn't translate to book sales. At all. Because the books don't even 
like reflect the movies and the movies are being made more and more to reflect the books as they are now. It's a weird dichotomy where it doesn't work anymore. So I say make your own. Like if we look at uh, the formation of Image Comics in the early 90s, that was the case of a bunch of creators being back then make your own. And it's not a foreign or new concept because like I said, Image was formed that way. And if we go back a couple more decades, Charlton was formed that way. Like the concept of being uh, slave to two mega corporations and walking away to make your own is not foreign or even new. It's it's something that's always existed in the comic book industry and the entertainment industry. Um, but uh, just in that whole uh, premise I've given, though, give me your thoughts, JT. Well, as I, I love the fact that you brought up image comics like that that's such a seminal moment in comic history where like they they had a vision they wanted to do stuff differently they didn't want to be locked into you know the editorial mandates that were in place at dc and marvel at the time and they struck out on their own and i mean there's still image comics as a whole is still successful and they're much more you know indie based stuff like there's still great comics coming out of it it's just they explore all the alternate past. They don't, they aren't beholden almost at all anymore to superhero comics. And as far as catering, as you mentioned, catering to get different groups, because you know how Batman in particular, how many different stories and everything. Um, like the whole idea of how Batman has essentially been defunded in the comics right now. Very, a lot of that, people are claiming because of the, you know, the defund the police that have come out of what's happened in America the last few years with every, almost every day, it seems like. And honestly, I think a lot of that it's, there's good and bad, mostly bad because social media, and the internet has just kind of ruined intelligent human discourse. Like it, I can remember back in the day having an argument, but like on a scale of one to five, just a, loud passionate discussion with friends at the comic book store about ways certain storylines were going we ultimately came away okay you still don't like that you know bob me and mike still like it but we're still friends but you can't do that anymore because if you don't subscribe to one particular mindset it's heresy and you are the devil and like you can't agree to disagree anymore and it just makes it really hard to enjoy anything coming out of the comics industry so no wonder people want to find something that is different that is i don't know this no one looks just to enjoy anymore it's always got to be a very specific mindset i mean how do you feel about that neil well um i look at media because i am i do write my own stuff i look at media as like the way it's going right now, it's like very message heavy and it's not possible. I don't think it's really possible to write anything without having a message, but it's so heavy handed now. Yeah. So now on the topic of like making your own stuff, the way I approach it is like, I've got my own, uh, I've got my own perspective on how to tell a story and how to make jokes and be funny and all that. And so my whole perspective on it is, you know, just bring, bring in my sense of humor and my, my, uh, my view on uh, storytelling and action and just, and just throw it out there to be like uh, to, to compete with what's out there already, because I think it is becoming like a very, uh, 
a mono sort of storytelling where everything kind of has the same tone and it's not really something that I like. And I, I, I think we've lost a lot of the lighthearted nature of, uh, of classic storytelling and, uh, and even humor. Like I keep bringing coming back to humor cause I, I do like the funny stuff, but, um, for example, like SNL, have you tried watching SNL lately? It's all just like, uh, yeah, it's all just like, uh, you know, Democrat good, everything else bad. And, and I'm like, well, that's not what I, I, I grew up with like the, the, the nineties, the early nineties cast where you got like, uh, you got Dennis Miller and, uh, Phil Hartman and all these guys. Norm McDonald. Yeah. They had like a, yeah. Norm McDonald and Dennis Miller, who had like a very different perspective than what's okay now. And they were the, I thought those guys were very funny. And like today it's just not that way. Yeah. I mean, as far as me watching SNL, the last time I paid attention to it was uh, those. And I just watched it on YouTube, those series of clips of uh, Jim Carrey playing Joe Biden during the election oh my god those were insufferably bad oh because honestly, the only one i liked was where he did the ace ventura loser like after biden you know quote unquote won the election whatever you believe happened there i but, i have no skin in that game i'm just saying <laughs> i laughed because he did the whole ace ventura reference and i was like give me more of that please but well the problem is is biden is a big enough joke where he doesn't know where he is at times he doesn't know he's on stage like he literally starts walking away from the podium stops looks around doesn't know where he is and they don't make fun of that it's called dementia yeah they don't make fun of it and it's like what are you doing snl you have like the perfect target on tv every day and you don't make fun of it what the hell is wrong with you that that's a good exactly that there is a great point of you know no one say what you will about the last three presidents, Joe Biden, just, just to illustrate my point here, Biden might be doing something good, but the guy is so out of sorts, I wouldn't be surprised if the VP is actually steering the boat at this point. Oh, God, yeah. But everyone, because of their own personal politics, is just crying havoc and wanting to let slip the dogs of war because they don't like Kamala Harris's politics or they don't like the fact that she's a woman in political power. No one liked Trump, even though for all his bluster and bullying and just ignorance about so many things, the guy did try to bring, at least from my view, I mean, I don't know that much about politics. Like he tried to make things better in America. Obama tried to do that too, but, and he probably did some really skeevy shit like every president has, but people just cried, cried foul and criminal at Obama because either they didn't like the fact that he was a well-spoken black man who had power in America. He had a really well, bad stutter. I say Obama or me. Obama did. Like, oh like, yeah. Yeah. But no one made fun of that. Yeah. But no one made fun of that either because he was a black man in power or they just, he was a black, like it's, that's the thing. Everyone is so focused on, the stuff that they want and that they're not getting, and then to kind of bring it down to the point that Ben suggested, is that so many people have gone out and started doing their own thing because that's what, you know, don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. Like, they're trying to put out into the world what they want to see in the hopes that other people glom onto that. And I appreciate that. That I wish a lot more people were like that. 
Well, the numbers are, the numbers have spoken. It, it there is a want for this. There is a market for this. Like, um, and the people who are making these new things are not specifically being political about it either. They're basically saying we don't like the politics, and so we're going to make something that's apolitical versus political. A great example of this is Richard Meyer, who I still understand why Marvel was so scared of this man. Mm-hmm. To, to give you context, Richard Meyer or your boy Zach uh, uh, has a had a YouTube channel called Diversity in Comics, where he literally this is what he did: he went to a comic book store, he bought a couple of books, he sat in his car and he recorded himself like flipping through it in his car and saying, "You know, I don't like this," or "You know, I don't like how Riri Williams is here." And like he doesn't say anything super strong or controversial. He doesn't say anything like, "Why is it a black girl?" Or anything. he doesn't ever say anything like that. He just says. I don't like it. This is a little lame. This, this is a little slow. The pacing is bad. That's the most he says. Well, can Being I recorded... Yes. Were there any inter- interdimensional villains that tried to stop him while he was doing this? <laughs> uh, that, comes, that comes later. That comes <laughs> later. But, uh, but uh, if we want to car- call Mark Wade an interdimensional villain, yes. Um, he does look like a little bit of a goblin, though. Um, Point is that Marvel Comics kept on trying to get rid of him, kept on trying to get him flagged. Mark Wade personally tried to destroy his business um, repeatedly, and this isn't the first time Mark Wade has done this. Mark Wade has controversially, allegedly, uh, <laughs> got into a business partnership with someone to open up a comic book store, screwed them out of the business, and stole money from them. Allegedly, um, you know, it's. Mark Wade has a history of being a bully, an industry bully. Uh, and it's it's impressive to me how many comic book industry professionals like lost their shit and like dedicated so much time, energy, and, and money to try to shut down Richard Meyer's YouTube channel where he is sitting in a car, recording on his iPhone, reading books, and saying, I don't like it. Like, it's really fucking weird. And Meyer decided, you know what, I have enough. This is a man who has no history writing comics only a history of reading them, and decided to just open up his own comic books company called Splato Comics, and he created a book called Jawbreakers. And Jawbreakers is basically quasi-G.I. Joe. And okay. he started an Indiegogo saying, hey, I'm doing a book called Jawbreakers. I'm not going to do this book shit. I'm just going to do a regular comic book like an 80s G.I. Joe issue. Like, if you read, like Larry Hama's G.I. Joe, you're going to like me. And he made like four hundred thousand dollars doing this. That's just the first kicks, the uh, first uh, crowdsourcing. Like that was Jawbreakers Lost Souls, four hundred thousand um, dollars. Then he did uh, Jawbreakers Forever, uh, one hundred twenty-one thousand dollars, still going on right now. Um, you know, he does several other books. He does a book called Iron Sights that's eighty thousand um, dollars. Like. Like he he legitimately, I think out of all the campaigns and books he's crowdfunded, I think he might have made at least a million dollars by going directly to the people saying, "Hey, you want you want to read comic books like you used to like? Pay me, and I'll I'll make it happen. I'll do it." And again, it, the books themselves are not political. Like Jawbreakers is kind of like an '80s Larry Hama GI Joe. It's 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 not offensive either way. Like, none of these books are about, like, are, like, over-the-top political books. And there's been those in the past. Like, there was a really weird political comic book company in the 90s and early aughts that 
had a book where uh, Cyborg Sh- Cyborg Sean Hannity was fighting the resistance against uh... <laughs> Neil knows the book I'm talking about. That's why he's laughing. Uh... Well, I'm just laughing at Cyborg Sean Hannity. Yes, and you um... lost me at Sean Hannity. <laughs> my, just my fuck that guy. <laughs> but my point is again that the whole that. If you think that the, that any of the books that Splato Comics is doing is like that, you're wrong. They are almost painfully apolitical. Like they don't even try to be political, and they're succeeding. They're making like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And think about another creator, uh, the Ripaverse is a brand new project that's made over three million dollars raised for Ripaverse. Uh, first book is I saw him number one. And and the Ripaverse is interesting because the creator of the Ripaverse basically says, "I I have a uh, I have a code of conduct for the books we're going to make." And the idea is number one, respect the customer. Basically, we're not going to tell fuck you to our customers. We're not going to say we're not going to do this whole. You have to be this, this, and that. Or if you disagree with this, this you have to be you, you have to be a hater. You know, none of that. Respect the customer. Number two. Canon and continuity. Basically, we're not going to like retcon things or change how a character acts the next time we get a new writer. We're gonna we're gonna keep the characters the way that the readers like them. Like like Ripaverse's whole thing is not political. Ripaverse's whole thing is about we want to make comics like '90s comics and not uh, and not be beholden to uh, the whim of a new writer we get in that wants to tell like a really political story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, we see this is working that, uh, people are like, you know what? I don't like what the big two are doing. I'm going to make my own. And I think that that is a wonderful thing. I think that that is a cell thing that should be celebrated that people are willing to go. Yes. I want to read this or yes, I want to make this because no one else is making the things I want to read. And I think that we're not alone, that there is a whole crowd of people that are like, I want to read comics that are like what they were in the nineties or the eighties or whatever I decade I grew up in. I'd like to oh. jump off of that for a second, just based on something you brought up, which is people who antagonize their own fans. Yes. And uh, well, first let me, let me finish the thought about SNL. So um, because SNL is so obnoxious now, we've had a lot of people on YouTube that have come forth and become comedians themselves and have made very, very very musing, very fun things to watch and listen to. And YouTube and Twitter and all these social media companies are constantly fucking with these guys. And it's really starting to get annoying. But uh, to pivot to something a little more topical, <laughs> let's talk about G4. Now, oh, G4, G4 is like, uh, it was once great. It was kind of like, it was kind of like Blockbuster or Nintendo Power, where it's like this this institution that you know didn't have any competition so like if you wanted if you wanted gaming content you went to G4 they had like they had some decent shows like icons and uh well that's basically it. they reran starcade i love um, xplay yeah they they're pretty good but they they merged with tech tv and then they kind of they kind of went downhill cuz they were really as i suggest they really weren't making engaging content so they kind of they started to go down and they took tech TV with them and then YouTube happened. And now we have all this wonderful gaming content out there from, uh, my life in gaming and the, the gaming historian, 
and these let's play or these not let's plays well they're good too but uh what i was thinking of was like the uh the speed running channels the the speed running documentary channels that ben and i watch everything salt oh god those are so good and it's Business. stuff like g4 never thought of and so after all these years of having of having this let's make our own content in the wake of g4 now g4 thinks it's going to come back and the fucking hubris of these people to be like, well, we're the OG uh, gaming content. We're going to come back and show these youngsters how it's done. And they made nothing. What they did was they put this person on the air who just antagonized the audience and said, said you know what? You thought we were going to talk about Call of Duty or whatever the hell the topic was. No, we're going to talk about sexism and gaming. And it's like, okay, there's sexism everywhere. I'm not going to contest that, but that's not why we're watching your show. And if you're going to say... If you're gonna say uh, if you don't like it, don't watch. We're not gonna watch. Yeah. So, I, so what, just, what happened is in less than a year, G4 hit the skids because we didn't need them because we already made our own shit. Yeah, and, and to speak about G4, like I was, I was legitimately excited when I heard they were coming back, uh, mainly because I was kind of hoping they were gonna resurrect Attack of the Show, which is besides I that. Never and, yeah, yeah I, know. I think Morgan Webb but, won't touch that with a ten foot pole. Anyway, if I could continue, <laughs> uh, I wanted to see like I they brought X play back. You got Adam Sessler, and I have always appreciated his reviews. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes a little overly critical, sometimes overly negative, but they were always honest, and I appreciate that. At, and Attack of the Show, I just liked it because it was you know a nerd news extravaganza. They had all these different topics, a lot of stuff I was into. Uh, but, you know, Olivia Munn chose not to come get involved because you know, she's got an actual career now, and she's like, you know, God bless you. They brought Kevin Pereira back, and he's got that same kind of manic energy, but you can look at the light in his eyes has gone out. He's like, the yeah. fuck am I doing here? But, yeah, I he's mean, stuff like that. When And when you make your own stuff, I think you have to... The, the conversation has to include fan fiction. Now, Ben and I have talked about this if more than a few times on the show before, and Ben's not... I don't think you're you are entirely against fan fiction, but, you know, when you talk about some kinds, like, this just reads like bad fan fiction. And my counter to that is, like, yeah, because comics is fan fiction. Now, after... Just to put a, a point in time to, to have a, delineate, a point of delineation, like, after let's say 1985, like after the original crisis, you know, you have 20 years, you, it takes a while to break into the industry. You, you've had these guys who've been writing for 20 years, like you have that. But after 1985, people, even if they're still enjoying, they don't hate comics, you know, po politics has always been inherent in comics, whether you consciously or subconsciously realize that. It's just after a certain point in time, all the creators that came into the business were fans, and they are essentially writing their own fan fiction. Now, I'm a big fan of Mark Wade's work. Him as a person, not so much. But he came in as a fan, and you look at when he took over The Flash, you know, he you know took over Wally, totally reinvented Wally's world, and he came with the Speed Force, created all these great concepts and brand new characters, and he rode... Like he righted the ship because let's face it, before he took over it, it was okay, but it wasn't that good. And fans, you know, have got into the industry because of that, creating their own stories. 
but as Ben said earlier, eventually their the creator's politics start taking over. And, and that's where th- we have problem like that. And I think the biggest part part of that is maybe we should look at it like as long as corporations soulless corporations control the uh the actual stories, the narrative, own our myths. The IP. Yeah, yeah. the IP. Um Whenever something in the political wind or the social wind takes, uh, you know, takes flight, they're going to follow it without like really realizing how much damage they're doing to their actual readers. You respect your readers, respect your customers. They don't do that because they think that uh, they're trying to check a box. They're trying to keep low. They're trying to not piss off the the loudest mind, the loudest tiniest voices. Like they don't read the room. They, like when I look when I look at Adam Sessler now, I see a guy who is saying the things he thinks he needs to say to not like get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a really weird nervous energy in the man when before he was a live wire. Um I was never a fan of his, but I always at least respected the fact that he said whatever he said and he was willing to stand behind it. Now he is saying things I know he wouldn't say five years ago or even three years ago. Um and G4 is acting like what made them work never was never that. They act like they acted like what made them work <laughs> like they had good programming, don't get me wrong, but at the same time we're talking about a network where they had uh, Olivia they had uh, Morgan Webb dressed in in tank top shirts that showed cleavage. They had Olivia Munn literally on the show adjusting her boobs all the time. It was very like, much a network for boys. Yeah, it, it they knew what they were doing. They were aware of it. Morgan Webb, Olivia Munn, and any other women working on it knew what they were signing up for. Right or wrong, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. But as I said, like they didn't have any competition at the time. There was no YouTube when G4 came out. So like if you wanted to see actual game reviews by real people, you know, that's where you had to go. And then once YouTube even if even if G4 wasn't going down the shitter by that point. YouTube would have like just destroyed them. Oh, it would have swallowed your whole. Yeah, unless they merged with them like, like in a board like fashion. Almost, almost immediately, you had AVGN and Screw Attack, who were just objectively doing better content than G4 ever did. Yeah, but Pat the NES Punk. Yeah, but uh, until Ian starts talking and gets in trouble. <laughs> well, there, there's a there's a Pat the NES Punk series that is not the completely unnecessary podcast but actually nobody watches the the regular pat the nes punk videos so i, I don't know if i would count him necessarily no, no offense, more at least no offense pat but but, but nobody really but, nobody really knows that he had his own character or remembers but, anyway but my point is whenever the water gets a little too hot or whenever the writers are not doing the things that we like or not respecting us as the customers not respecting the characters as we like them it inevitably happens that somebody attempts to make their own, and we've been seeing a string of successes. Like, let me point out something for you, uh, for the audience. Um, young superhero story, coming of age, coming from a legacy. Um, you know, some could say, uh, you know, DC Comics Superboy, or you could say Image Comics Invincible? Like, Miles Morales? Invincible is like a runaway hit. 
it when it was a print it was a pretty big hit but it was never like runaway but when amazon turned into an animated series oh my god invincible became a runaway hit and i don't think it was because of the story though i think it's solely because of the story i think it's because the fact that uh kirkman was looking to do something in the vein of Superboy-esque. I don't think he ever admitted that he was trying to capture the energy of Superboy, but I believe that that is a component of it. But because he's not using DC Comics, now he's not using the IP of Superman, he doesn't have the editorial mandate of someone looming over, over his shoulder going, you can't do this with Superman, you can't do that with Superman. He can do things that he couldn't do, and he could explore completely new ideas that way. That, that's what I was getting at with my comic fan. It's just, we as comic fans, those in the comic fan community, know that and recognize that with Invincible. But the popularity that the you know, I I hate using the term IP, but whatever. Uh, the thing is, most of the people that got on Amazon's dick because of Invincible the series wasn't because of the story, wasn't because of the commentary on superhero comics and the ideas of legacy and coming of age they're there because of the fucking violence and carnage like i guarantee you 90 percent of the people that gave more than you know, that gave a thumbs up didn't care one whit about the story they didn't care about the message they cared about superhero carnage and violence and watching omni-man feed an entire train to his son face first and that's let me let me let me preface that where where I want to say you might be right, but at the same time I think this. Um, you may be wrong, but you may be right. They came for the carnage; they're going to stay for the story. And and again, half that. I'll give that to you. That's a very good point. But I mean, again, all the people that stay for the story, only half of them are staying for the story because, you know, it's like when people complain about the Marvel Cinematic Universe's formula and the perceived lack of any attempt to make a decent movie or if they made a decent movie is most of the people who go to the theater don't know the comics to begin with. So they're all on there for the movies and such like that. That That's what I'm saying is just a lot of people. And again, that's somewhat near my coming from a guy who's been in the comic fan community since he was a kid. Um, but in terms of, you know, maybe we should speak about like stuff that we've done that you know we want to see certain things like Ben for years folks has been working on this comic called Majestic Knight which is heavily influenced by a certain Dark Knight detective although <laughs> it's not ex- it is not explicitly copying anything over there the, I think the only two things that in that I've seen in your work on Majestic Knight Ben is the overall Bat Family nature of Majestic Knight and his crew, and the masquerade, round table. the, the round, round table, table, and the masquerade, and a rose is still a rose, or however that by any other name that line goes, because it's it's the Court of Owls. But you at least were create. This sounds like a backhanded compliment. I don't mean it as such. You at least made sure everyone in the masquerade wore a different mask. Because like, in, that's because in the uh, in the French tradition of Carnival, um, there were different masks that denoted different personalities and personas. It's a uh, I looked into things, I researched like, uh, and I don't want to toot my own horn, but whenever I went into Majestic Night, I went into this idea of 
there are archetypes and uh, in in our fiction, there's archetypes in in the stories we tell. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to go further up the tap and like tap the primordial tap of the source of where these archetypes come from and try to distill another product from that and yeah. from the root tap. And that's where Majestic Night came from. Yes, you're right. There are Batman elements that came from there. There's definitely the imagery that I borrowed. But again, if this is my personal opinion, if, uh, if Kirkman never got sued for Invincible in Omni-Man, I, I think the night is at least as uh, derivative as uh, as that compared to Batman. I, I think that that's a very fair statement. I think that... Well, I, I think there's a, there is a canyon of difference between uh, inspiration and... Uh, Rip-off. Yeah, like, like I love like a lot of the stuff from what I've read in Your Majestic Night. I like that because it's got that Batman flavor. But it's Batman, and granted, if you know the the circumstances, the creation of Batman, folks, this might sound a little disingenuous if you know the actual origin of where you know Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Although I put more of the onus on Bob Kane with this. Uh, Batman is steeped in, you know, pulp novel adventures, like two-fisted man of action kind of stuff, to the point that Batman, for a time in the beginning, uh, used guns. Uh, it was very, a... very, very rarely. I, that's just let me fin make my point, Ben. Okay. It's in the early years of Batman, he did use guns in the like the first couple of years, and as Ben said, very rarely. And it wasn't well until I think mid 60s or even earlier mid 60s where they really came around where batman does not use a gun like he is he no bueno like he will he knows how to use guns he knows how to take them apart he's made every robin test fire everything from a nine mil handgun to a kalashnikov in the bat cave because you know to know something is to not be afraid of it and it's all part of his mission statement you know as you're going into a gang fight and these guys are firing off things. Well, you you know to pay attention to the, how many shots have been fired, and then just hit the clip release and all that jazz. But that, in and of itself, is like the whole Pulp Fiction thing. I love because there's something very pure, and it just the, with the the I, the power of imagination. Like you, you can read stories like that and be infinitely entertained. Versus reading a modern comic book with all the detail. And you can get nothing out of it. It's uh what's that line from Superman that Lex Luthor did about the gum wrapper and War and Peace? I forget. Oh, uh, some people could. Uh, it's from the movie. Uh, it, you read I, War and I, Peace. I, it's it's a simple adventure story. You can read a gum wrapper, and you've got the secrets yeah. of the universe. Yeah, like that. That's the difference in almost any medium that you consume nowadays. But specifically, like I love pulpy adventure stuff. A little bit more than I love superhero comics. Not that yeah. I love them any less. It's just there is a purity of idea in those sorts of novels, which is why, uh, like, I've never put anything out there. I've shared it with friends, but like, I I work on stuff all the time, so mostly just to keep my own head straight, and I don't listen to the demons. Uh, but I created a pulp character called Faceless, who is uh, this crusading 
a district attorney in this nameless city because I could never figure out where I, what city I wanted to set it in. You know, he's like, uh, he's trained as an, he's trained to the point of being an Olympia, Olympic athlete, but he's never actually competed. It's just, you know, kind of, kind of made him like that classic, uh, like Mr. Terrific, uh, what do you call it? A polymath, polyglot or polymath or polymath. Yeah. And, you know, he has this idea of, you know, truth, justice and all that. And he's taken down by this assassin sent by the five heads of these five families in the city. And everyone thinks he was blown up in this hospital because he survives the assassination attempt. And then there's the assassin comes back and they find the assassin's body and assume it's him. And he goes off and creates, uh, he steals like all this money from the five goes off gets plastic surgery done so his his new face is a composite of the five crime lords you know that so the ultimate don't i know you from somewhere kind of thing and he comes back creates a new identity and becomes a thorn in the side of these guys but the idea is that he wears this uh hood how many times did you watch dark man before you wrote this <laughs> That's very good, but that's not where it came from, Ben. Ben, in editing, uh, elongate that pause. <laughs> no, just put the cricket sound in there. It would be perfect. <laughs> that, I No, it's the idea was that he and the rest of the people in this city that have been run roughshod over by this criminal enterprise are treated as faceless nothings, only serve there to feed the appetites of this criminal empire. So, but when he comes back and the mask he wears is, it's very much like, it's a full hood, but it's so tight he doesn't have any features, so he basically looks like the question. That, I will say, is where that came from. It came straight from the question, which is that idea of Victor Sage wearing the blank mask and going out into the world like that. And that character uh, came, like I said, from my love of pulp comics and pulp heroes like you know shadow the phantom because there's something i think very powerful in the idea of one man against the many so, you know he sorry please continue okay um again these are great ideas but there was one more mainstream example i wanted to bring up about this about make your own um it's about a creator that I know not never really like saw eye to eye with or even like considered one of my top creators that I followed. In fact I used to disparage him quite a lot. But mm -hmm. uh talking about Seth MacFarlane, like I <laughs> don't get a sense of humor sometimes. I think he's a little boisterous, a little loud, and I think he has some really stupid opinions. But what I won't take away from the man is he is a Star Trek fan. He is a Trekkie. He is a real Star Trek fan. He that loves passion. Star Trek more than most people I've ever seen. And in the last five years, even longer than that, Star Trek kind of sucked. Like, the Abrams movies, like, I kind of like Star Trek Beyond, but that's a different story. But, uh, um, you know, the TV shows, the Kurtzman shows, suck like uh discovery awful uh you know brave new worlds man uh picard god awful like these shows are awful these shows don't oh. appeal to the fans that love the original shows it's like it has a lot of what i call wikipedia writing where the people who write the scripts 
look up on Wikipedia what the episodes they're referring to are, and like, oh, okay, I understand now. And they write, they write based on Wikipedia. That's what it feels I'll, like. I don't feel like the writers actually like literally watch Star Trek. At the point where um, it's been revealed that when Star Trek Discovery was being created, you had to have a senior person who was a Star Trek writer back in the 90s draw them what the, what the quadrants of the, of the galaxy were because no one understood that. Which is kind of rudimentary for understanding Star Trek the the dilemma of Star Trek Voyager specifically. It's kind of weird and funny that that here is here is a property that's being handed to painted by people like Ortiz and uh, Kurtzman who have on record said they're not Star Trek guys, but they're handling it in a writer's room full of people who have no knowledge of Star Trek that do Wikipedia writing. Disrespect the fans when they complain about things like the bloody blade death of Icheb in Star Trek Picard. And then you have a guy named Seth MacFarlane who does comedy shows, cartoons, like and like three movies of which one and a half are questionable. It's <laughs> he he is like this really weird creator who is kind of mad to me, and he's a guy that Paramount would never, never give the Star Trek license. Would never say, "Here, Seth, we know you love Star Trek. We watched your little." your little uh, home videos where you're filming yourself as Kirk in the garage with your friend as Spock. No, 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 they don't do that. They're, they're, they would never do that. So Seth had to like go to Fox and say, hey, yeah, I have an idea for a show that's like Star Trek, but fam- but like Family Guy. And which is, by the way, a total lie. And he got them to fu- fund it. He made a show called The Orville, which, yeah, the first three episodes are a little bumpy little bumpy but the love he has for star trek the love the reverence he has for star trek is so apparent that you can't help but respect it like it is a good show it's an entertaining show it works for me and it's not the best it's not perfect star trek it's not not every episode is the best best of both worlds like but what we want like me as a Star Trek fan, Neil as a Star Trek fan, what we want is competent Trek. And Seth MacFarlane is giving it to us. Okay. To go back to something you said a few minutes ago, <laughs> uh, I will give you Discovery and Picard. You put some respect on Strange New Worlds, sir. That is <laughs> light years. It, it is light years fucking better than it has any right to be. And that is in that is in despite the black holes of ineptitude that have erupted from discovery and Picard. That being said, I totally agree with you uh, with sex, sex, (laughs) Seth MacFarlane and his passion for star Trek. Cause it's apparent there in the Orville and it's just, you know, aside from the family guy humor, I love a million ways to die in the West. I think it's not the best comedy movie, but it's, it has a heart to it that I don't think a lot of people recognize and you know his passion for like old school aesthetics like you know classic animation uh the fact that he's a bit of a crooner he's put out a couple of albums his character in uh was it sing with the anthropomorphic animals putting on a show uh where he's the little koala that's singing like uh, he's saying my way which and that's all him uh the the idea of paramount not giving him a shot at actual star trek is 
is a sin because he's a passion and he gets it and he could do so much with that. Then you look at uh, Marvel and specifically Disney. Now, you know, we've talked at length before about the fact that I, I think that James Gunn got screwed over by a couple of snowflakes who spent a weekend going through his tweets and these people yeah. that, you know, lose days of their lives to find that one nugget of dirt to send it rolling down the hill snowball style just because they don't like somebody. And first of all, assholes, he apologized for that years ago, and he's done everything he can to be a better guy since, and more power well, to him. Was it really worth apologizing for? It was like an off-color joke. Yeah, well, it's the the idea he went as a Catholic priest, because that was the gag, he's a Catholic priest, and his girlfriend at the time was dressed up like a young child or something like that. My point is, I, Disney... Sorry, Neil? Can I also point out that this guy also worked for Troma Pictures, and he just oh, God, auto yes. automatically had that sick sense of humor, and like, why are people even surprised by this? This is the man who directed Romeo and Juliet. Have you so, not seen Slither? Like, yeah, come on, like, guys. Like, what the hell is wrong with you people that you and, don't understand? And it's not like the House of Mouth doesn't have three acres of warehouses filled with bloodthirsty lawyers that will chew everything to the bone to make sure that Disney and the franchise and the whole family thing, like, that's the thing. Like, if you have... As, as, like currently, if you have any sort of questionable social media presence, you will not, they will not even look at you for the perceived idea that you might bring something incredibly, like let's say Seth MacFarlane was the world's biggest Spider-Man fan. Like he loves, he loves and breathes like the way Sam Raimi was a huge fan. And you know, he's done all this goofy shit and Disney wouldn't touch him because, well, he's not that family friend in the image and they keep hanging that. And that's the thing that bothers me about stuff like this is that Disney keeps hanging themselves, literally hanging themselves with this idea of family friendly. He's like, did you guys not look at some of the shit you put out between 1970 and 1990 before the Renaissance? You had the, the Watcher in the Woods, you had Tron, Something Wicked, This Way Comes, all that gnarly live action stuff they did in the 70s, the Black Fucking Cauldron, whatever your opinion two, about that words, might I be. Words, I have two words for that. Ben, do not cut me off the knees, I'm on a roll here. My point is, Disney has this in their history. They were proud of it. They were trying... Like, granted, they were circling the drain a little bit with this stuff, but they at least tried this, and they had some success with it. So to wholesale deny part of their own history for the mere idea of being look, any sort of negative connotation is absolute hypocrisy to me. So we heard it here first. JT is saying re-release so the Songs of the South. I'm waiting for someone at Disney to realize... I will... But... Sorry, Neil, one second. I'm going to crawl through the internet and bitch slap you, Ben. You <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting, also, I'm waiting for someone to... at Disney to, to go back in time and realize what the, what the Wicked Witch in Snow White was actually saying when she, was, when she wanted to be the fairest of them all. And she was talking about skin color. And the other thing I want to add to, to your whole rant about Disney, JT, is two words, touchstone and pictures. <laughs> but see, that that in itself, Ben, is like when criminals put shell companies around shell companies around shell companies. I No one I knew, like, 
as a kid and growing up thought that like oh touchstones pictures it's blah 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 it's like this thing like no one even if you knew it was connected to disney no one would connect it to disney in their heads it therefore it was disney. a then i'm getting to that even though it is disney no one thought it was disney no one acknowledged it was disney it was treated as a separate entity and all disney does with stuff like that is insulate themselves because they have this preconceived notion of what they are and it's to jump wildly across the entertainment spectrum, it's like wrestling. Now, say what you will about Vince McMahon and how he's run the company for years now that he's retired, but he had a very specific mindset, and that's why for like the last 15 years, like the last 22 years, like since WCW folded, they've creatively, to a very large extent, stagnated because they have no competition. Competition breeds creativity. And he ha they haven't had any decent competition till you know Tony Khan and AEW, and that's all to bring it back is that's even that's kind of questionable. I mean, it's it's Tri yeah. It's Triple, Triple H said something the other like a couple weeks ago that was like, yeah, they they beat our development show. Ooh, you know, <laughs> the big <Yeah>. competition. <laughs> but the, but that's that my point. Like I said, is is like you need competition to breed creativity otherwise you know nothing progresses which you know to bring it back to what we started with is fans aren't seeking to compete with the companies that they once love if you create like the next great superman type character you've you're not un un unless you're some sort of er you're arrogant on the level of oh god i don't even want to like Sean Hannity to bring that asshole back into it. <laughs> uh, unless you have that level of arrogance to think you can do better than DC Comics, like you actually believe that, unless you have the creative drive and the skills to accomplish that, you're going to be a fart in the wind. But if you come at it from a place of love and you've created, like, Robert Kirkman and Invincible, you know, he wasn't trying to replace Superboy or Superman. He had something to say, and... The idea that inherently, why aren't some of, I think one of the questions is, why aren't Superboy or Superman's adventures more violent? Not for the necessary, like, you need to have that gore, but why aren't they more? Because, like, these guys are literally the strongest beings in the universe. I'm surprised that Clark Kent doesn't put a hole in the floor when he trips to the Daily Planet. Like, but, you get uh, what I'm saying. It's just, comes from love. But the other thing I want to add about this is we talked about lots of instances where we see these creators trying to make new things like Richard Meyer and Mark Wade's attempt to completely shut him down and keep him from publishing anything, which shows a fear of competition more than anything else. Because if Mark Wade and Marvel Comics was so confident in their ability to create stories, they would welcome the confidence to be like, oh, this is just some guy who reads comics in a, in a car. Why would we be scared of him? Just let him do whatever. Let him do what he wants. It's fine. We'll just yeah. beat him in the market. But, but the fear is, is very telling to me. Like, let me give you an example. Um, I think it's fairly obvious that I think uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics' reviews are... I won't say bought, but I will say that corporations do lean on the scale a little bit. And I think that's a fair statement. Would you guys agree? I'm going to agree with that wholeheartedly when I say, no, really. <laughs> but, well, let me give you an example. In 2017, when the Orville came out, Orville season one on Rotten Tomatoes 
You want to know what the critics' rating of Orville Season 1 was? It was pretty low, I remember that. It Less was, than 15%. It was 30... It's, it, today, to this day, today, it is 31%. That's what the critics ranked ridiculous. it at. And they basically lambasted it for, you know, trying to, you know, saying it, it's, 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 it's... Okay, here's, here's the critics', cons- critics consensus of today. An odd jumble of campiness and sincerity, homage and satire. The Orville not never quite achieves liftoff, with the critic rating at thirty one percent, while the audience rating is ninety three percent. Yeah, like, I think there's some astroturfing going on there. I think all the all the critics kind of talk to each other and they're like, "Yeah, we need to do something about this." Yeah, like which is it, which is ridiculous. It shows that they're not they're not aligned with the audience at all. They're not interested in what the audience is actually interested in. So they're, they think they're going to control the market, and that's just not how it works. And yeah. the funniest thing about that is, like I said, the, the discrepancy between the critic rating and the user rating is humongous. It's like a 62-point spread. It's amazing. And the funny thing is, after the huge outcry that Orville Season 1 got, like amazing outcry, best ratings that uh, Fox ever had on a show, new show, uh, best streaming Hulu has ever seen, Orville Season 2 on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics rating, you know what that is on Season 2? Mm. 100%. <laughs> no, this was unbought and paid for by no, no, that nameless company here. No, my my point is is they see the way the critics are seeing the way the wind is blowing, because they tried to squish it like a bug in season one, it failed. It got a huge upswell of viewership, and then season two came along and they're like, oh, we, people are th- starting to think we're fake reviewers. Like we're, they think we're astroturfing with each other. We might as well agree with the audience now so they don't completely dismiss what we say as uh, propaganda. Didn't Discovery kind of pivot after... Oh, uh... Discovery has an amazing pivot. That uh, uh, Look this up on YouTube, JT. <laughs> this is hilarious. Um, so Discovery Season 1 was weird and awful. It had, like, cannibalism and death and mirror universe and eyes being gouged out and, like, Michael Burnham being, like, the most important person ever able to do like super math and like Vulcan abilities while being like not Vulcan and Spock's secret sister and all this Mary Sue bullshit. Okay. One, I, I kind of like the, the whole sister thing. Like it wasn't perfect, but that didn't bother me nearly as much as this other stuff that Ben has mentioned. Point is, is, is discovery season one took itself extremely seriously. Like this, like, like this is serious business boys kind of super serial, super serious bullshit. Um, and then the Orville happened, and Orville season one was kind of silly, kind of like I wouldn't say it was like Family Guy in space because it told that's not not what the show is at all. Uh, I think but, that's the best distillation of Seth MacFarlane's comedic talents. It it didn't go as far as Family Guy does, but it still had that flavor. Well, the idea of, of the Orville is these are real people you can relate to, understand, and are not, they're not stuffy and perfect people who read Shakespeare on their time off. They, like, go play Mortal Kombat in their time off kind of people. That's what the Orville yeah. is about. So, so like, at a, at a Comic-Con, when there was time for the trailers for the new seasons and stuff, Orville Season 2 dropped, uh, dropped a trailer with, uh, with the song It's All Right Now by uh, Neil... 
Who's it by? Um, I don't remember. Uh, let me look it up. Um, by free. <laughs> okay. And the it's it's a very it, it fits with the Orville's tone because the Orville's tone is very jokey, but at the same time, there's lots of Star Trekky things like speeches about about you know joining the greater galaxy and stuff like that in the trailer. The trailer is a very good trailer for or the Orville. It's like basically saying we're embracing the Star Trek roots more. We're still a little silly, but we're not. But we're also a little bit more serious now. Everything's great. Um, yeah. And then, like, the same day, the same fucking day that the Orville dropped this trailer for Orville Season 2, Discovery dropped tra- the trailer for Discovery Season 2, which was, uh... What was the name of that song, Neil, that they did? I don't know. Uh, I Want to Get Away? Oh, yeah. Fucking Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. I'm kind of glad I didn't see that trailer. Yeah. Because I yeah, love that away. song. Let's see, yeah. Lenny Kravitz and Free. Which one does Neil like more? <laughs> Not Lenny Kravitz. But, but the point is, is it also shows showcases like the quote funny moments of Discovery season two, including a an alien sneezing on somebody in an elevator, which is totally not the tone of Orvi- uh, of Discovery season one. Like Discovery season two, purposely tried to make itself look like the Orville, like embarrassingly so. Yeah, and, and like I, I remember, I showed Neil these tr- these trailers, and and Neil, you were like, "What the fuck's with this pivot?" <laughs> Absolutely, because like I remember what Discovery was trying to be, and then like all of a sudden it's being like all funny, haha, like sort of like another show that j- just happened to be around at the same time. It's like ah, I see what you're doing there. What show was that, Neil? The Orville? No, the... Oh, Jesus, I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted, I've wanted i been wanting to ask you, Neil, like, you're... Like, are you doing Dossie anymore, or is it just space... Or you're just working on Space Honeys? I'm just working on Space Honeys. Dossian okay. was... Uh, let's talk about something that was done as sort of like a make-your-own type project. Uh, Dossian was kind of like a kind of like my version of superhero mixed with like uh, all sorts of like weird anime uh, influences I was going through at the time. Like it's, it's basically project Aiko with, with some, uh, I don't want to compare it to dragon ball, but it is kind of like dragon ball, the fighting anyway. And the idea was that you have these two goofy chicks that just kind of hang out and are catty with each, with each other and like, la 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 la. And then somebody robs a bank. They're like, Hey, and then like all of a sudden they, they tear the, they tear the city down. Although it never really got to that point. And it's kind of what I always wanted it to be. And so uh, after a long time of just like uh, writing things that were, in my opinion, juvenile and like not really achieving the height of what I wanted it to be, I just kind of like, what am I doing? So I, I took like, uh, what I was going to do is I was going to do like a uh, a parody of a variety show for DCN where like it was like, the girls and all these different situations that were parodies of TV shows. There was going to be like a, there was going to be like a, like a, well, there was, space honeys was one of them. It was going to be, it was going to be like a parody of the dirty pair. And then there were other ones like, uh, there's going to be like an Archie comics. There was going to be, there's going to be like commercial bumpers and all these sorts of like, weird. there was going to be a, uh, a parody of like, it's a wonderful life. 
which was going to like cross with uh, the the uh, the film short about Springs, where like Decian's like, oh my god, like I. I I don't think I want to be a superhero anymore. And then like this little guy shows up. So you don't want to be a superhero anymore. Yeah. And then, so he like, he, uh, he takes her superpowers away and she's transported to this world where she never existed. And it's like her seeing how like everything's different. So it's like, it's a wonderful life, but it's mixing these two elements together. And it was also going to be, I was also going to work in like the Niagara Falls bit, um, which is much more, Hard to harder to explain, but it's got to be like this really su- silly uh, concept. But anyway, I was looking at Space Honeys. I'm like, this is the only one I think is actually really funny, and I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of potential to expand this. So I'm like, why don't I just do Space Honeys? And so that's that's kind of how it came to be. Fair and enough. The other yeah. thing I would I want to ask Neil quickly is uh, the character of Bailey. Yeah. Uh, is that because you, like me, had a huge crush on Jan Smithers from WKRP? Absolutely. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. Uh, she is absolutely Bailey Quarters. I'm not saying Lonnie Anderson wasn't hot. I'm just, the glasses did her. it for me. Yeah. No, and, and when you talk about fans and doing their own thing, as we kind of start to wrap up here, uh, I'm going to mention a two-season wonder that we all love. Kicks Dig Giant Robots. Megas yes, XLR. XLR, yes. Because yes. uh, Chris Pranowski, I hope I said that name right, originally became familiar with his work because he had this MTV uh, series Low called... M- no, that, that was the short that became Megas. Downtown okay. was the original series during the, like, the mid to late 90s where MTV kind of went dove headfirst into animation after success with like liquid TV and Beavis and Budhead and all that. And it was a series about these young 20 somethings living in uh, very stylized animation, living in New York. And, you know, he heart and soul went into this series and he kind of got fucked around by MTV. Cause it would be put at like weird hours or be put after like the biggest show of the week on MTV. And then they wouldn't get any ratings and then it got canceled. So, Megas XLR, folks, is a celebra- It's a loving celebration of the super robot mecha genre of anime with a whole bunch of pop culture references smeared over top. The main character, Coop, is this chunky guy. He's got a 76 Cuda that you know looks pretty sweet. He happens to find a headless robot in a New Jersey junkyard and becomes the unlikely Voltron-esque defender of the universe alongside of his uh, his uh, scrappy little pal Jamie, who's voiced by the great Steve Bloom. The Coop was voiced by... Uh, oh, God, I forget. It's one of the Deloise boys. Uh, is the dad on Wizards of Waverly Place. And I forget the actress who played Kivu's the soldier from the future. And I mean... It's like how much crap do you, how many anime do you think they had crammed just into the body of the Megas robot, Neil? Like I know I saw the spaceship uh space battleship Yamato in one episode. Oh god. And that whole series, right? Like nothing but anime. Like they had this one thing or one episode where they he goes to the planet of like sentient robots, and all the robots look like very like just off kilter mazinger z and other super mechs the two main ones are voiced by 
Optimus and Megatron themselves, uh, Peter Cullen and Frank Welker. Uh, there is, what was the name of the Bruce Campbell guy, the the Modoc dude? Magnanimous. Yeah, who had the uh, Ash Williams by way of Elvis uh, battlesuit. Like everything about that show was, it was nothing but love. There was no real story aside from the basic, the aliens from the future that Kiva stole the robot from and it got lost in time, come after them every so often. But like there was no story. It was nothing but love spread over half an hour. And every opportunity they had, Chris Pranowski would have Megas accidentally blow up something belonging to Pop TV. Because that man is nothing if not human, and he holds an eternal hatred for the way he's dicked around by MTV. Mm. And yet, no one really recognizes that. Everyone's just like, oh, it's just this dumb cartoon about shit going, getting blown up in robots. Now, is there, aside from Magus, is there another show, something like that, you, you, it's this loving homage that somebody wanted to, they loved something, but they did it their own way, aside from the Orville? The Orville sticks in my mind the most because is the fact that it was it should not have worked. It yeah. had everything against it. You know, uh, Seth MacFarlane never had a uh, a lot of credit as a serious showrunner. Um, it was running on Fox, and Fox usually gives new shows the, the death time slot. Um, Fridays, yeah. It's it had everything going against it, and it worked because the Star Trek fandom was so fucking starved for Star Trek, good Star Trek, not great Star Trek, not just anything better than bad Star Trek. We we wanted passable Star Trek, and that's like here, here you guys go. It has a couple of jokes, but if you like that, that's fine, and it works. Like like it's. The reason why Orville keeps coming up is because it's such a weird, perfect example of this, of make your own, where where it proves that the audience has always been there, and the audience is starved for this. You know, same with Richard Meyer and Jawbreaker, same with the Ripaverse. People want this. People need this. The big companies are so big, you know, they have the mindset of too big to fail, so they don't give a fuck. When Marvel Comics makes $3 billion a year on movies and they can treat uh, a $30 million print, and print company as a loss leader, they don't give a fuck. Like, like they could throw that $30 million away on hiring authors and artists and editors and inkers and colorists to make these comics that only 30,000 people in the country buy. Out of a country of, of, of hundreds of millions, it's 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 kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Now, uh, is there another property or franchise? Like I said, you know, Ben's got the Orville. I've got Magus. Is there one you uh, can think of, Neil, that kind of fits that whole fans wanting to see something and doing it their own way? I'm gonna think of like a hundred of them after the show's over. The only things that I can think of off the top of my head are just video game properties, like. Um, in more recent years, because a lot of the older, a lot of the older IPs have kind of like either gone horribly wrong or have kind of faded away. There was like this new industry of fans cre recreating some of the classics, like how uh, 
how Bloodstained is actually just Castlevania or Freedom Planet is just Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, yeah, stuff like that. There's like there's like a half dozen Mighty um, Number Nine, which sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's a bad example. Double <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, uh, what's what's the one that's uh, yeah, Shovel Knight. You just said it, which is kind of like Ducktales. Um, yeah. There's all these like Blazing Chrome is another one. It's kind of like a uh, it's kind of like a Neo Geo game. It's like all these like little little like fly by night, do it yourself creators who are like recreating the the classics and actually doing it in such a way that is informed by how video games have in, have evolved and understanding. Uh, better play control so they actually play better than the games they're based on i i think so anyway like some of the old yeah. nes games are just kind of like is, eh. you know I, I mentioned mighty number no. nine have you ever heard of a game called it's just 20 xx uh i got it on one of the free week things off of the epic game store and it's basically a love letter to a mega man i probably oh i do have that i've never played it yeah it's so much fun stuff. There's a bunch of stuff on the Epic Game Store that I just I just grabbed it because it was free one week, and I'm like, I'll get to this eventually, maybe. Yeah. Now, uh, and one other game I'd mention, I just have to look up the uh, the maker here quick. Uh, have you ever played the Dead Island series, like the first one? No. Okay. Kind of. Yeah. Well, it. The reason I love Dead Island so much is. Up until 2011, like you had the Resident Evil series, and you had so many other, you know, demon slash zombie things like that, where they're just going like full on dark survival horror, like basically Resident Evil on crank. What I love about Dead Island, and it's got all the tropes of classic zombie. Like this is what if Romero made a zombie movie video game. And it's you're you're stuck in this uh, like South Pacific island, a zombie. It's like more like 28 days later kind of rage virus zombies, and it's you know scourging weapons, trying to figure out how to get off the island and all this stuff. But it's like the idea of it's like uh, Dawn of the Dead, but as a video game. And I love that. And I've read interviews with the creators, which uh, came from Deep Silver, which is responsible for like the Saints Three and Four two of my favorite games of all time because I have so much fun with that. And they said they were very much, like, they loved classic zombie movies and they wanted to put that love into this game and not make it like Resident Evil. And if you ever want to play something over a weekend, I would highly recommend this game. I mean, you got the sequel coming out. been coming since 2015 so it's supposed to be out next year we'll see if that actually happens but i would highly recommend that is watermelon but games involved not <laughs> that i'm aware of I'm, but uh I, but i think we talked enough about uh, at least for now there might, there might be a part two but uh i think we're gonna wrap up now uh, so this is our topic about make your own where people uh no longer Stick to the major conglomerates that make our media. We try to make our own. We celebrate the creators, whether we disagree with them or not. Uh, we celebrate the fact that alternatives do exist, and they are kept picking up steam, and we should at least give them the time of day. This show's Ben. JT from Saskatoon. And TV's Mr. Neil. Or say goodnight. So long. <laughs>